Such a joy to sing with you men gospel truths that we all believe. We were blinded by our sin, had no love for God within, and then he came and rescued us. In the words of the Apostle Paul, though I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's what we say. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. This is the grace of our God. Well, in case you haven't missed it, we're considering wisdom here today. Not the wisdom of this world, but the wisdom of God. We have heard that by definition, it is reverential submission to the Lord and His Word. And we live that out in everyday life, and we do so by faith, trusting that what God has revealed in His Word is our only sure guide. In the Old Testament, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, etc., were the the potent expressions of God's wisdom. And yet the entirety of the Old Testament was an expression of God's wisdom. The law was the instructions that God gave that we should follow. And the prophets and the histories describe the working out of that in the lives of God's people. And the New Testament is a bit like that too. The Gospels. They show us Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And then the letters that the apostles write to the churches play out that wisdom in specific instructions and the the working it out that the church did through the writings of the apostles, how we live out faith in Jesus in a fear of God. And Paul's letter to the Corinthians is especially focused on this theme, working out in the fear of God, the wisdom of God in our everyday lives. Paul here contrasts folly, what he calls the wisdom of the world, with the wisdom of God. And he does so in the opening three chapters and then throughout the rest of the letter of 1 Corinthians, and then even in throughout the entirety of the letter of the 2 Corinthians, he works this out in the Corinthians' lives for them. They were exalting folly over a fear of the Lord. And this New Testament book being the wisdom, in which the wisdom of God is the primary theme and and purpose for Paul writing it, this is where we need to go. So, let's take our Bibles, be men of fear of the Lord and reverence, and look in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians and respond to what we hear there. I want to begin with the culmination of Paul's main thesis, just jumping right to the point Paul has, all the way at the end of chapter 3. And so open to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul really issues his first imperative in the whole letter. He lays out the case and then drives to this point we see at the end of 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 18. It's actually a triple imperative. He gives three imperatives here right in a row. Look at the text. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. It is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men. Did you, hear the, did you hear the three imperatives? Let no one deceive himself. Let him become a fool. And then verse 21, let no one boast in men. Quite a bold statement, actually. It's a warning against self-deception. It's a calling to become a fool by abandoning all boasting in men. Essentially, Paul is saying, listen, as you exist in this world, among men, 
I want you to make a fool out of yourself. If you're wishing to be wise, you must be willing to be a fool. Now, at first, this, this instruction sounds like nonsense. Wait, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth here, Paul. And yet, that's a Paul's whole point. The very key to faith in Christ is walking in a fear of the Lord, not a fear of men. It's to understand that true wisdom is naturally going to look like to you nonsense. And it's certainly going to look like nonsense to the world around you, at least to those who boast in men. And so to, so to fully understand what Paul means, let's, just, let's back up to the beginning of this letter to the Corinthians, back to the beginning of chapter 1, and let's hear how Paul arrives at and drives to this conclusion. Not just for the Corinthians, because Paul's only echoing here the call of Jesus to every man, whether you're in Corinth or Owasso or all points in between. The path of wisdom, even the path that leads to eternal life, is to become a fool in the eyes of this world, even to your own eyes. So, how does Paul begin this letter? Well, there's two things that we need to discern very quickly about the Corinthians from the first half of this letter. One is that they're Christians. Paul's writing to a group of Christians, and two, they're not acting like it. That's the interpretive grid with which you come to 1 Corinthians, and you come to it right off the bat. Look at verse 2. They're Christians to the church of God, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. I mean, Paul just lays it out there. There's no question. These are ones to whom he's writing. These are ones who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a, there's a whole lot packed in a freight practice packed into that phrase, and the rest of the New Testament lays it out, exactly what it means to call upon the, Lord Je- the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but Paul's going to define it for us in verse 30. Look down at the end of the chapter, verse 30. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, colon, three things, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Righteousness. Jesus Christ became to us righteousness. It's His righteousness, the very righteousness of the Son of God, not just inherent in His eternal person, but as He came and lived, united in human flesh on this earth, He lived out perfect righteousness, always meeting God's standard in every case, in every time. Like you haven't. That kind of righteousness. Perfect righteousness. And the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus Christ is willing to write this account of righteousness on your record. Righteousness He became for us as a gift to all who will call upon His name in faith. He became to us redemption. This is a word that means He paid the price to release you. We use the word pardon or ransom. He paid the price, redemption, that in His death on the cross, He paid the price that our sins deserved. The wrath of God was poured out on Him. Our enslavement to sin and the penalty for our sin was taken by Him. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He paid our price to set us free. Our shame is removed. Our sins are forgiven. All of them. Our guilt is covered. What a gift. He became redemption for us. But also, he became, the middle word there, sanctification. Understanding that in coming to Jesus, we become set apart from who we were and who we were with. From the regular course of this life, we no longer belong to this world. We belong to Jesus forever, both in eternity and now. And we completely belong to Him. We are set apart. We are sanctified unto Him. Meaning, we repent. We, we leave behind 
all other lords and all other loves, both the sinful and the self-centered ways and thinking that were so natural to us and is so natural to the world around us even now. We leave it behind. We repent. And we begin with an earnest heart to obey and serve Him as our Lord. Even if we do so imperfectly, we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He becomes to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, and then verse 31. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Glory, seek after, be devoted to, praise, glory in Him. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. He's my righteousness. He's the one I follow. The Corinthians were among those who confessed that with all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus in every place. And by God's promise, those who do receive eternal life, full reconciliation with God, both now and in new eternity. That's the gospel. I stress this point for for two reasons, really. One, such faith and repentance toward Jesus Christ is where all wisdom comes from. Jesus was very clear. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Friend, somehow if you've arrived at this conference and you've convinced yourself thus far in life that you have no need for righteousness other than your own, that you have no need for anyone to pay the price for you, and you don't want to be set apart for anyone except yourself, and you are good just on your own, then that has some implications for you But at the very least, it makes Jesus a liar because he said, no one comes to the Father but through me, and I am the door, and only those who enter by me will be saved. So don't be self-deceived any longer. You must become a fool and believe this. You must stop boasting in the wisdom of men, including your own wisdom, that thinks you're doing okay. And come to only boast in the wisdom of God. This is life. This is eternal life. Not just some future thing, a ticket you stick in your pocket and you'll show it when you get there, but this is eternal life even now, lived out every day. If you will receive His Son and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't assume everyone who sits here has become such a fool. But I do know on the word of Scripture that everyone who does become such a fool receives the gift of eternal life. And unless you go through this door, everything I'm about to say and everything Paul says here will be both somewhat unintelligible to you and likely undesirable to you. So some of you need to stop right here. That's fine. You don't have to listen to me. The rest, what you need to focus on is verse 2, verse 30. Just meditate there. But the second reason I stress this, that the Corinthians were Christians, is because, as we are about to see, it is entirely possible to be Christian and not live like it. That's not how it should be, but it's entirely possible that it might be. It was for the Corinthians. That you, you're in, and there are entire areas of your life where you're not sanctified, set apart for the Lord Jesus. You have not repented of your old ways, and you're still walking in them, not in the wisdom of God, but still in the wisdom of men, in the wisdom of your own mind. It ought not to be this way, but sometimes it is. Sometimes a little too often it is. Evidenced by this letter, it's quite possible. Let's see how the Paul, Paul exposes the Corinthians, beginning in verse 10. That not just that they are Christians, but they're not behaving like it. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> that all of you agree 
And there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Because it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I mean, I thank my God I baptized none of you, except Christmas and Gaius, so that none of you may say you were baptized in my name. Well, I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says he's writing to correct them, but he does so gently. He appeals to them. They're out of order, but basically in their heart, they don't want to be out of order. They want to be in order, but they're not. And so he appeals to them to bring their conduct in line with their confession. They're not boasting in the Lord. Rather, they're boasting in men. <clears throat> Without digging into the particulars of, of the Corinthians and the bottom uh, line of all the goings-on, the, the reality was that they had divisions and schisms in the church. I mean, you can see that right there in verse 10 and 11. And they, all these divisions and schisms, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, etc. This was over their sick love affair with impressive leaders who they thought met their, their pet worldly preferences. And that all seemed to be in line with the Greek world of their day, valuing lofty speech and human wisdom and bold personas. Sadly, frankly, it sounds a little bit too much like many quarters of the Christian church today. So they divided themselves all up into these little factions. But here's what I want you to see. This is not the problem. This is the fever, but it's not the sickness. The sickness is much deeper. The problem was they were not willing to be fools for Christ's sake in the eyes of the world or in their own eyes. As they followed Christ, they wanted to be with Christ like, you know, I'll, I'll take his righteousness and redemption and yet... I'm going to keep on living not set apart from the world. I'm going to keep on living by my own wisdom. The wisdom of the world around. They were unwilling to be set apart from this world, to be different, to be seen as fools by the people among whom they lived. And the rest of the letter is going to lay out all the symptoms. And you can just track through 1 Corinthians all the things that Paul addresses. Just further fevers, further symptoms of their sickness. But it all comes back to this sickness. They loved the world. They loved to be accepted by the world. And they were living by the ways of the world. Their God was their belly and their approval was the eyes of men. That's it. That's what they live for. And so Paul's strategy here, after exposing their folly, their foolishness, their lack of set-apartness, is much like Solomon did in Proverbs, is just to lay out before them the contrast between the wisdom of men and the wisdom of God. Look at verse 17 again. Notice how he, he contrasts two different things. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who is being saved, it is the power of God. In order to lay out this distinction between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, Paul just basically goes back to two ways in which they came to Christ. First, how the gospel came to you, verses 17 down to verse 25, and then chapter 2, verse 1 to 5 again. How did the gospel come to you? Verse 17, Paul says, look, when I brought the gospel to you, and I am the one who brought the gospel to you, I didn't come with words of eloquent wisdom like you're looking for these impressive leaders in your midst about. I didn't come like that. Because if I did, if I had the word lest, 
in verse 17. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He says, look, I wasn't going to be the impressive guy. I wasn't going to be wowing people with my rhetoric and my bold persona. Because if I did that, what would be the result is I would be emptying the cross of Christ of its very power. Look how he says it again in chapter 2, verse 3. So I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but rather in the demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see the contrast here? There's the wisdom of men. And entirely compared against it is the power of God for salvation. The two have nothing to do with each other. Such that, Paul says, even if I preach the right gospel but in the wrong way, I'm actually going to empty the gospel of its power and it's going to become the wisdom of men. Whoa. There's the wisdom of men that men naturally gravitate to, and there's the power and the wisdom of God which seems so foolish to men. The two are incompatible. Look at how Paul talks, continuing it out of verse 18. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Quote from God. So therefore, where is he who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know or come to know God through wisdom, its own wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Look, the Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Not only consider how, you, how I brought the gospel to you, See, you, you, he's saying, listen, guys, you are so focused on these impressive leaders dividing yourself out, just trying to live by the ways of the world. You're, you're forgetting how I was when I came and plainly explained the gospel to you. I wasn't like these guys that you're seeking after now. You're even trying to make me like one of those guys. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. That's the wisdom of the world. You have a love affair with the world. Not only remember that, but remember also how God himself called you. And this is where he continues in verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you powerful. Not many were noble birth. God chose what is foolish in this world in order to shame the wise. God chose the weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. The, reason, the only reason anyone would believe what we preach, Paul says, is because God personally chose you to respond to this message. Because you used to be with the world. I was blinded by my sin, we just sang. I was just living in the ways of the world. So how did someone who does not see the wisdom of God as anything but folly, how do they come to believe? Because God chose them and called them to belong to His Son. And He did so for a very specific reason. I mean, why doesn't God choose very many NFL quarterbacks and, and Fortune 500 CEOs to belong to His church? There's a few of them. Because God's not partial, but not very many. Why not? Because it's harder for a rich man to come into the kingdom than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Because, verse 29, God designed it this way so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Literally, that's how the ESV reads. Literally, it reads, so that no flesh 
might boast in the presence of God. Comparing flesh to God. God doesn't want His church boasting, glorying, craving, seeking after, loving the things that this world boasts in, glories in, craves, and seeks after. Because we're no longer in the world. I mean, we no longer belong to the world. We've been set apart. So we don't chase after what the world craves anymore. We've been set apart. We've been given something better. We've been given someone better. The Lord Jesus Christ. And thus, verse 31. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord. Let him who belongs to Jesus be willing to be a fool for Jesus in the eyes of this world and according to the wisdom of this world. Paul says, look, that's how you became a Christian and therefore you need to make it how you live as a Christian. That's the whole point here in chapter one. That's how you became a Christian. Not by the wisdom of men. Therefore, this is how you need to live as a Christian. And so then, in beginning in chapter 2, verse 6, he, he gets into the nature of true wisdom. Look how he reasons here. Verse 6 of chapter 2. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although, not a wisdom of this age, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But, and here's the, here's the key phrase, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. This is the whole crux of the whole issue. If you don't understand these verses, you don't understand the Christian life as you live it. The, the mature here that Paul refers to in verse 6, it's not some special class of Christians. It's just Christians who believe in Christ and are seeking earnestly to follow Him. They understand that they not only have received righteousness and redemption, but they've also received a sanctification, a setting apart in how they live in this world, and so they not only believe in Jesus, but they live for Him. That's the mature. It doesn't mean how long you've been in the faith. Paul's not just writing to the kind of old Christians, the super Christians. No, just those who understand how it works. You're not babies anymore. You're not you do, it's like you don't know how to walk or talk. All you do is scream when you want something. You're not like that anymore. You're mature. You understand the nature of Christianity. That Christ became wisdom to us, redemption and righteousness, but also sanctification. And what that means is, is that we're continually repenting of our old ways. We're continually repenting of the world's ways in the world in which we live, those ways in which everyone around us walks, and we are willing, because of that, to be seen as fools by the people we live around. Paul says to live as a Christian is wisdom. It's the very wisdom of God, but it's not the wisdom of this age, nor is it of the rulers of this age. The wisdom of God to them, Paul says, it's like it's, verse 7, it's like it's a secret. It's like it's hidden from them. And herein lies the problem. If recognizing, fearing, and following Christ were the most natural and obvious thing to do, then Paul reasons, verse 8, the rulers of this age would never have crucified Jesus. Why would they have? But it was hidden from them. Jesus' glory was veiled. Even though he plainly demonstrated by his words and his works that he was God's son, sent for their redemption, it's like it was veiled. They couldn't see his glory because they would not, as Paul describes in Romans 9 through 11, they would not look upon him by faith. Verse 
This is a mystery. It's as if it's hidden. And then Paul in verse 9 quotes from Isaiah 64, just like it was in the wayward and rebellious times of Isaiah and the Jews, the path of wisdom does not come by natural human perceptions. This is what Paul is saying. What, I, what no eye has seen, you can't see it with your eyes. The truth that Jesus is the Lord of glory. You can't even see Jesus. Where is he? Right? This is what the world says. What no ear has heard. You've not heard it outside of the revelation of God's word, but anywhere from here, there's no hearing of it. No one's ever heard of such a thing. And certainly what the heart or the mind of man has imagined, no one's thought this up. You can't get there by human means. Only by the revealed word of God. These things, though, though they're hidden and no one can get to them naturally, these things, verse 10, God has revealed to us. Paul speaking as the apostles and the church of Jesus Christ to us. How? Through the Spirit. And verse 13, therefore, we impart this, this hidden secret wisdom in words not taught by human wisdom but rather taught by the Spirit in understanding spiritual things by spiritual means. So, verse 14, the natural person, the people who live all around us, and our natural perceptions, they do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to such a one. He's not even able to understand them. Why? Because they're spiritual. They're revealed by the Spirit through both the Word of God and the Spirit of God that dwells in the heart of all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what this means, what are the implications of this, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, of a crucified and risen Jesus who sent his apostles and church throughout the world to preach this gospel, it teaches us to believe in Jesus Christ for righteousness, redemption, and to live for him in sanctification. And so we don't follow the natural patterns of this world anymore. All who embrace and live for Jesus Christ will only ever be thought of as fools in this world. I'm looking at you guys, and I'm telling you, I know most of you love the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a bunch of fools. in the eyes of the world. And you will never be anything but. Let's get over our love affair with trying to be perceived by anything, by this world as anything other than the fools that we are. Because we don't embrace the wisdom that they have. We embrace the wisdom that's given to us in God's word. And it's high time we just get that in our thick skulls and in our calloused hearts. In order to be such, we must live by faith. As Paul, or Peter says in the opening chapter of 1 Peter, you love Jesus, but you've never seen him. You believe in him, though you do not even see him now. It's by faith. You rejoice in him with joy inexpressible. We're going to have to live by faith that, in fact, we're not fools. We actually have the true wisdom revealed from God himself who created this world, that God has promised glory will not come in this life, but only when Jesus receives his glory in this world will we receive glory with him. And that's why God says, look, verse 7, God decreed this before the ages for our glory. We may be considered fools now, but we've got glory to be coming. We will reign and rule with Jesus Christ when he returns to reign and rule on this earth. And so we're, we're not like infants. We're, we're, like a, we're like a mature man who can wait for his paycheck. I mean, right? You don't go to your boss at the end of every day, hey man, I need my money, I need my money. You wait for your paycheck to arrive. We know it's coming, and so we wait for it. We work diligently, and we wait. We're not like infants. Their belly gets a little hurt, hungry. Ah! That's the whole point in chapter 3. 
Brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, it's like you're infants in Christ. I fed you milk, not solid food, because you weren't ready for it. Even now you're not ready, because you're still saying, oh, I want impressive leaders. Oh, I want this, I want that. It's like you don't understand the glory that is waiting for you when Jesus returns. And you want all your glory now, and so you're craving for the attention of the world now, and you're, treating, you're, you're, you're structuring the church just like the world. So you get, you get your fulfillment now. <laughs> No, we're not like that. We don't clamor for the immediate approval of men, not even the immediate promised blessings of God. We're like farmers. We plant, we water, we wait. We're like builders. This is the illustration in the middle of chapter 13, I mean, in the middle of chapter 3. We, we, we take the foundation of the gospel that God laid in our lives and we build on it Lives of faith and hope and devotion to Christ and we wait for the last day when our work will be tested and then we will receive our reward from the Lord. See, to those who live in this world, who live by the wisdom of this world, that, that's sort of like patience and waiting for promises that you've never seen fulfilled. That's foolish. You're wasting your life, you Christian men, is what the world will say to you. And if our heart and mind is not continually reminded by the Spirit of these realities, then we'll become just like the Corinthians. We'll begin to think that all this living for Christ is not getting me anywhere. And so I'm just going to go back to living like the world. No one's going to make a fool out of me. And thus all this culminates in Paul's final calling in verses 18 to 23. Don't be deceived by your eyes, by your ears, by the, by the imaginations of the heart of men, and by all the ways of this world. God has called you by the word of the cross outwardly and by the working of His Spirit inwardly. He's chosen you. He's chosen you for what? to reject the wisdom of this world, to be set apart and all of your own flesh that pulls on your, your mind and your pride and your desires to say, no, you need what you got coming to you now. Now it calls you to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith to believe in Him and to wait for Him to return from heaven with full glory. Has God called you to that? I mean, I'm asking you each individually. You need to answer the question for yourself. Has God called you to call upon His name, on the name of His Son? If so, then be a fool. Live the fool. Be willing to make a fool out of yourself for Christ. Because I'm telling you, that commitment is going to make you do some foolish things. I worked as an engineering manager in, in the manufacturing environment for a while before I became a pastor. Three different companies, and in my career, I made some really foolish choices. One was here as I was working in Tulsa, and the owner of the company kind of called in several people. They were going through a big restructuring, and I'm just a young engineer working there, and my boss is there and the owner of the company and he's like, Ted, man, you got lots of potential. But you know what? You can really go far with this company, but 40 to 50 hours a week is just not going to do it. We need a lot more out of you. I looked at my boss and I looked back at him. And I said, man, I appreciate that. That's quite an honor for you to tell me that. But you know what? You hired me to do a job, and I'm going to do that job, and I know what it takes to get it done. But I've got other priorities outside this place. They're in my family. I've got young kids. I've got a church that I serve as a deacon at, and, and that's where my true joys are, and I want to, my true joy is doing a good job for you here, but I don't really need to advance in your company. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. I mean, how foolish was that? My career just went in the tank. Another company, 
we were in a manufacturing environment. I mean, it was going bad. Things were really going bad. I was one of the production managers, and the plant, the big plant manager calls us all, all the, you know, any kind of manager into the office. We're sitting around packed conference room. My boss is sitting next to me, plant manager, and he's just like, man, we have got to change things. It's going really bad. And so, he said, we need help, you know, and so he, I've seen this little statue in his office before, he, but he takes this little statue of Buddha, you know, fat Buddha, you know, the big belly, and he puts it down and he says, you know what, I want everybody to rub Buddha's belly, we got to have some help. My boss, man, he grabs it up, yeah, puts it down in front of me, <sighs> fool that I am. I take this thing and I just set it in the middle of the conference table. I don't pass it on to the next person. <laughs> I, go to my, I go to the plant manager later that afternoon and say, Huey, listen, I, I need to explain what I did and there is a God in this world who can help us and I just want you to know I am praying diligently for all the trouble we're in, but I, I, can't, I can't. That was a foolish decision. And, and around the time that I was heading to seminary, just before I met Desmond, I was a mid-level manager in a big manufacturing environment, and great boss, Rick, I loved the guy, but there was kind of incentives, they were a big restructuring, a couple of years if we stayed, we would get a big financial deal, but man, I was, the Lord had called me, I'm going, this is, this is what the Lord's called me to do. And so I went and I told Rick, hey, listen, in six months, I'm, I'm going to quit and I'm going to go to seminary. I'm going to take my family, move across California. It's going to be a big deal. And I could use a reference, you know, to try to get a job out there and all that. But I'm just telling you, I know there's a big financial payoff here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it behind because it's time for me to go. I, I don't have time to waste in this life. We only get one life and this is what I'm doing. And he looks at me and he actually says, Ted, you are a fool. And I was kind of like, these words, I'm like, this is biblical language, man. <laughs> I think you know you're probably on the right track when the world looks at you and says, you're a fool. I don't tell that about myself to be a champion of my own cause here. I'm just saying that's exactly what Paul is saying. This is your story too, isn't it? You've got ways in which you have made decisions for Christ that have made you look like a fool in the eyes of the world. And you've got more ahead of you too. Because that's all we do is look like fools to the world. How do you do this? What does it look like? Well, for starters, you can read through the rest of 1 Corinthians. I mean, the, the very this already, we've seen it, and the next chapter... You, you can see, you can stop expecting your church leaders to be impressive in the eyes of the world. That's how you can be a fool for Christ. You can stop thinking your pastor has to be Superman. And your elders have to know everything and, and, and be really, really good businessmen, etc. And rather, you can expect only what the scripture expects out of them. That they would be men of the word in piety and prayer. That's how you can be a fool. You can go to the next chapter in 1 Corinthians and you can stop chapter 5 and you can stop tolerating sin in your own church. You can be such a fool to think that Jesus is going to hold you accountable if you and your church don't hold this sinner in your midst accountable. Because that's exactly what Paul says. So you get involved in the lives of your fellow men in your church in such a way that they can see your sin when it's happening and they're going to come confront you. And you can see their sin and you're going to go wade in and help them. And if they don't listen to you, you can express your concern to your church leaders who may call out that sin publicly. What a foolish thing to do in this world. Only in the eyes of sinful men. But what a faithful thing to do in the eyes of God. You can stop tolerating sin in your own life, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the Corinthians, for them, it was sexual sin and sensuality. And I don't know how 
sexualized the Corinthian culture. We kind of all, oh, the Corinth, it was so, such a sexualized place. Compared to our world, where all you need to engage in sexual sin is your phone in one hand and your sexual organ in the other. And you don't even have to, have to go find a prostitute. You don't have to hassle to hook up with some woman somewhere. Man, are you tolerating it? The Corinthians were. And Paul says that's just the ways of the world. That's just the wisdom of men. That's not a reverential submission in fear of the Lord. That's not understanding what Jesus says, that you were set apart for Him, body and soul. No one's harmed. False. You are harmed. Your wife is harmed, present or future. Your body is degraded, and Christ Jesus is defamed by the spiritual world who sees what you're doing. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And it is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual sin. That each one of you know how to control his own vessel in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like those who do not know God. Men, I speak strongly because of the grave danger, not because I think it's just a simple thing to cast off. It's not, it's pervasive and it's powerful. But are you willing to be a fool to follow God's word in the ways he says to give it up once and for all? Be such a fool as to seek out another brother's help, accountability from a mature Christian brother. But it all starts with this question, am I willing to be a fool in my own mind to give up this pleasure that has captured me so long? Stop fussing around and start acting like a man of God that he has called you to be and glorify God in your body. So you can go through the rest of 1 Corinthians like this, but don't stop with the letter of Corinthians. How about asking the question, how does a husband become a fool? If you have a wife or if you're preparing to have one. By actively loving your wife in sacrificial ways, not worrying about it if you're going to get anything in return from her. How about being a fool like that? Like, really? It doesn't matter what she gives back to me. This is my service to Christ, to her. As an emulation of Christ, I lovingly lead her and serve her. I stop demanding and I start blessing I stop serving myself with my God-given authority over her, and I start serving her. Actively leading your wife by investing in spiritual pursuits that benefit her and your family. You willing to be such a fool? I mean, you may get nothing in return. She may actually despise you in return or ignore you. I, d I don't know. Are you willing? That's what Jesus calls you to. How does a dad become a fool? By constantly, patiently, lovingly, slowly structuring, training, disciplining, teaching, expecting, and praying for the godly attitudes and behaviors that Christ would design for your child and demonstrating them in your own life. Imperfectly, yeah, yeah. But really, build an example into your child's life of a, of a father who's kind and gracious in relationship with them. Teaching them as you sit in your house and as you walk by the way. Man, I, I'm just telling you, it's going to take quite a bit of time and effort to do that. I have grown kids. It takes a whole lot more time and effort for me now to be involved in my child, children's lives as it did when they were young. 
You might have to give up your gaming. You might have to give up your fishing, your golfing, your fantasy footballing, your whatever in order to make time for this. Because God in his wisdom has constrained us in this world in time and energy. You only have so much of it. And that means you're going to have to make some choices. Foolish choices. To deny yourself, deprive yourself, die to yourself. How foolish is that? So that you might do the things that the scripture gives you to do as the leader in your home. That's just There's rarely time to serve yourself and to serve others in Christ's name. Sometimes there is, but just not very often. Be a fool. Walk in the wisdom of God in fear and in faith and follow the instructions that God has given you for a dad. You won't see quick results from this. And men, you may never see results that you desire from this. Are you doing this for your pleasure or for God's glory and your children's good? You've got to ask yourself that question. Why am I doing this? Because this doesn't seem to be working out very well. And the world's saying I'm a fool to spend so much time in this. And my own flesh is telling me I'm such a fool to spend so much time in this. Why am I doing this? Because Christ has become to us wisdom from God, redemption, righteousness, and sanctification. I belong to Him. I live for Him. That's who I am. I have the wisdom of God. I'm not living by the wisdom of this world. How does a man become a fool as he just relates with his God? Just is a man, a created being who will stand before God in judgment, who understands why he was created. How, how do you live as a fool in this world? Well, you spend time in his word. You open the book and you receive wisdom from it. You relate with God through how he has revealed himself to you. Not in the machinations of your mind and what you think, but through his word. You ask, talk to me, God. Talk to me. Tell me. Tell me what I need to hear. I crave hearing from you. I crave seeing your glory here. This is what I was created for, to relate with you, and that's what I'm doing here. I'm not trying to find some nifty skill for managing life better. I'm trying to be a worshiper. That's what you seek out of me, and that's what I desire. And you pray to Jesus about your cares. You cast your anxieties before him. Acting, believing that he's actually going to do something with them. The, I mean, I, it just cracks me up when the world says, hey, we need to pray for these people. You know, an earthquake happened. Let's give them our prayers. What a nonsensical statement. They're praying to no one. They don't expect actually anything to happen except people feel good vibes inside. That's not why we pray. We pray because we pray to the God of the universe who can do anything. And we pray earnestly and honestly. We do business with Him. Asking Him, right now, do this. But I'm going to wait for your timing. However and whenever you choose to do this. It's up to you. You're God, not me. You're in His Word. You pray. You, you serve His church in ever-increasing ways. You do your part in the work that Christ is doing in the world. You invest heavily in these things. And so, yeah, it makes you give up some of your own habits. Exchange them for kingdom habits. Be so foolish as to leave off immediate and daily pleasures that you enjoy giving yourself so that you might give them to the Lord. As a free act not a coerced act, but a free act of love to him. You see it? Paul's not playing word games here when he's like this, be a fool, and uh, you know, that's a pretty cool phrase. No, he's saying, really, 
you're going to see yourself as a fool every time you do something like this. And you say, yeah, I know. I know. That's what I'm called to be. If you walk in God's ways, you really are being foolish. If the promises and power of God are not true. But they are true. And so you're not being foolish at all. The secret, hidden wisdom of God, which our world does not recognize, is, back in chapter 2, verse 7, for our glory. This was the whole point in chapter 3 about building on this foundation because your work is going to be rewarded. You're not being actually foolish at all. And that's how Paul ends chapter 3. Let no one boast in men, verse 21, for and here's the, the reason. Why do we do these three imperatives? For all things are yours. Whether Paul, Apollo, Cephas, the world, life, death, the present, future, all are yours. You are Christ. And Christ is God's. Christ Jesus belongs to God. You belong to Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus has promised you, just follow the logic of the text, all things. What kind of all things? Well, the very things the Corinthians thought they had to so have now. Impressive leaders. Oh, yeah. Paul says, yeah. Verse 22. Paul, Apollos, Cephas. You want impressive, bold leaders when Jesus returns. His saints will reign and he will put the best men in the highest positions. It will be perfect. You'll have that. Not now, but then. You want the world and all his pleasures? Have you not read of how the scripture speaks of how Jesus will renew this world? I mean, the lion will lay down with the lamb for crying out loud. Have you ever wanted to play with a cobra? You'll be able to. It's going to be awesome. You'll have the world. But you don't have it now, just like Jesus didn't have it when he came. Secret, hidden, veiled. But it's real, and it's promised. Are you waiting for it? You'll have life, you'll have death, you'll have present, you'll have future. I mean, it's just Paul's way of saying all things. Everything that it costs you to follow Christ. Everything that the world is saying you're a fool over. You'll have it. Peter asked Jesus at one point, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Do you remember how Jesus replies? Everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive that back will receive a hundredfold and eternal life. It's wrapped up in those who call upon the name of the Lord for righteousness, redemption, and sanctification. It's all wrapped up together. And you will have it, in Paul's language, all. So though the world and even your own flesh will pronounce upon you, Fool. Well, as Jim Elliot would say, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And the path of wisdom with God is to be a fool for Christ's sake. And when your flesh cries out, fool, say, yeah, I know I'm doing it right now. Let's leave here committed to being wise men who are willing to live in this world as the fools that we are. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus Christ, it sounds like blasphemy to say that when you came, you lived as the ultimate fool on this earth. And yet in the sense that Paul speaks of here, 
you always did the things that were pleasing to your Father. And therefore, in the ways and the judgments of this world, you always did the things that were displeasing to them. Thank you for being so faithful. Thank you for despising, as it were, the glories and embracing the suffering on our behalf, leaving us an example that we might follow in your footsteps. Lord, we have not done this correctly, and each one of us has areas that we have not been willing to be a fool, to deny ourselves or deprive ourselves, and we confess that to you, and we pray that you would make us much more sanctified, set apart for you. And this would not be some great pain and suffering for us. But by your spirit, we would be given eyes of faith and ears of faith and the heart of faith such that we would see things as they really are, as they will be in eternity, setting our minds on things above. We would have joy inexpressible. Grant this to us. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.